Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at SpoilerCountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I am Johnny Horsley, and today on the show, we talk with Zach Stentz, who is the writer of Thor, the writer of X-Men First Class. He's written episodes for The Flash, episodes for Jurassic World Camp Crustaceous. He's working on the current Booster Gold, and this is awesome, guys. This was a good interview, and I cannot wait for you to hear all the amazing things we talk about on this one. And this is Casey sitting down and talking with Zach. So let's just go into it and listen to Casey and Zach in their own words. All right, everybody, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have, well, we have a guy who's written many of the awesome shows that you've seen. Let me start over. That was crap. All right, everybody, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have screenwriter of X-Men First Class, screenwriter of Thor, screenwriter of Booster Gold, Zach Stentz. Zach, how you doing, buddy? Doing very well. How are you doing? I'm well. So can you tell us a little bit about Booster? Because I'm kind of stoked about this. <laughs> oh, I I wish I had better news about Booster. I I wrote Booster. Uh, I wrote Booster for uh, for Greg Berlanti and his company uh, about two and a half years ago. And oh my uh, goodness, <laughs> I, I had a great time. I had a great time writing it, and then it kind of disappeared into the into the Warner Brothers DC machine. And I, th- I think it was it was a little bit of an orphan because there was a, uh, a ch- I, th- I think there have been two changes in in regime regime since since I started writing it. And and frankly, I don't know what's happening with it or if it's <laughs> going to get made anytime soon. All I can tell you is I was really happy with how the how the script turned out, and it was it was a, a tremendous amount of fun working with with Greg Berlanti and uh, Sarah Schechter on uh, crafting a really fun Booster Gold story. Well, um, he's, he's such a fun of, character. Yeah, no, he's one of my he's one of my absolute favorite of the DC heroes. Dare I say he might be one of the more Marvel like DC heroes in being more in, in that he is more uh, human sized and uh, kind of a flawed guy instead of a uh, a larger than life icon the way that the way that many of them are. Oh yeah, yeah, and I'm sure you took all that into consideration when writing that character, and I really hope it sees light of day because that's such an amazing, amazing thing. But can can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I'm. I actually came to screenwriting kind of uh, 
through a different door than most people. My, I, I've only taken one class in screenwriting in my life, in, in, way back in college, and my degree is in journalism. And I worked for several years as a working journalist, up in, first up in the San Francisco Bay Area and then down in Los Angeles. And screenwriting had been a dream that I had. And I made a couple of efforts to get something going when I was still in the Bay Area. And after about two years of that, it became very clear that you had to be in LA to, to really properly make a go of it. So my, my wife, who had just graduated from law school, and I moved down. And you know, about two years, two and a half years of beating my head against the wall, the wall finally collapsed before my head did. And <laughs> I, I got my, with my then writing partner, we got our first gig on a TV show called Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. It was back in the days of the syndicated action hours. And, uh, and that was a wonderful, uh, wonderful learning experience. Wrote like, you know, 20 episodes over, over three seasons. But, you know, we, we went on to other things, shall we say. So I, I actually saw a, a message on a message board about Andromeda <laughs> that you had replied to people that were kind of unkind to the show. It made me love you in ways that I'm not really prepared to tell everybody because <laughs> you came out like you dickhead. If you do not understand, you came out so hard and uh, so thorough with your argument to where it was apparent that there wasn't anything on that show that you guys hadn't thought out. And it made me really respect how much thought and uh, detail you, you guys did on that show. So I, I just, it, it was fun re reading it. <laughs> that's, very, that's very kind of you. I, 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 you know, in my younger days, shall we, shall we say, I was much more willing to mix it up with, with people on the internet. Weirdly, that's actually how I, I met my writing partner is uh, both of us, you know, yelling at people about Star Trek on, on the old Usenet boards back in the, back in the <laughs> day. So, so, so being argumentative on the internet kind of comes to me naturally, but weirdly, as I've gotten older, I've really tried to get away from that and do less and less of it because yeah, there's something a little undignified about it. And more than that, though, I've just learned, I I've learned from being mentored by some very talented people, like, don't over explain your own work, like let the audience, I, I hate it when creators get between their own work and their audience's experience of it. And I, I think the more you kind of talk through your own show and explain like, well, this is what we were doing when we had this shot in there. You know, on, on some level, it's fun giving the, giving people a peek inside of the, the process, the writing and creation process. But on the other hand, it, it's like, let people have their own experience of, of the show or the movie or whatever it is that you made. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah, totally. And uh, to further question, is, is it hard to kind of step aside and put your feelings aside when it comes to something that you, you know, blood, sweat and tears and obviously the passion is there and from way back, the passion's there because 
I don't know when that Andromeda post was, but it was early 2000s. Yeah, way, and, yeah um, going on 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So is it hard to kind of put stuff out into the world and just go, you guys do what you will with it? Um. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. Because, you know, like, like uh, I, I don't think I've written anything that wasn't written with a tremendous amount of love and a tremendous amount of care. And it may have turned out great. It may have turned out t- terribly. Or it may be something that, like, I think, you know, if you don't like it, it's like, I, I think you just you're just not looking at it in the right way. And, you know, like I want everyone to like what I do. And yeah, I'm, I'd like to be one of those writers who's tremendously thick skinned and like, you know, Hey, whatever your reaction is your reaction. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, it does hurt your feelings when not everyone likes what you do. And there's the part of you that wants to go, you know, like, like wade into the internet and argue, argue with everyone. But you know, again, I'm trying to I'm trying to get get a little more distance from it all, and again, let people have their own reaction and their own relationship with with the stuff that I do. Because you know, the other thing is that it changes over time. You know, like like TV shows and movies that weren't particularly well loved when they came out oftentimes get rediscovered later. It's, you know, like I, I worked on the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which, uh, you know, was like oh, one yeah. and a half seasons and done. And now is kind of like uh, always comes up and like, you know, 10 best shows you should have been watching, but weren't yeah. <laughs> and things like that. So, so it's been fun to see people gradually realize, you know, like how much love and care went into that, went into that, that, you know, particular show does it kind of sting a little bit when you see show uh that show in articles where it's like you you missed out on the show you know it does but it's also you know like like it it was 10 years ago at this point and i've kind of (laughs) i what does edna mode say in the incredibles you know i try to live in the now (laughs) checks have already cleared you have moved on to the next thing yeah, you know, Speaking like, of. yeah, I, I mean, you, you can't, you know, you don't want to be one of those, you don't want to be one of those creators who like did one good thing, you know, that's increasingly distant in the rear view mirror. And all you do is, you know, kind of, kind of revisit your past glor- glories, you know, you hopefully, you know, want to keep creating and keep getting better at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so with that in mind, mind you wrote one of the only x-men films that i've really enjoyed (laughs) in in that you were the (laughs) you wrote the screenplay for x-men first class and i loved the hell out of that movie i really enjoyed it and given the movies prior you know up to then i i wasn't expecting much and you you blew me out of the water with that one yeah, you know, we had the benefit on X-Men First Class of low expectations, shall we say. The, you know, the previous, we were the fifth film in, I believe, in that particular franchise. If you count X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and Last Stand is is movies three and four. But, but you know, the thing is that we, you know how in like professional sports, how some seasons will be like a rebuilding year for the franchise. That's what Fox viewed X-Men first class as they were like X-Men last stand and X-Men origins Wolverine made a lot of money, but were not particularly well loved. 
we want you to have some, it's not as important to us that you make a lot of money. It, it's important to us that you introduce new actors and new characters that people love and build on the franchise to go and, you know, do great things from there. And I would like to think that we succeeded, you know, that we succeeded in that we oh, yeah. embraced a tone that was a little bit closer to the, you know, that didn't act like it was embarrassed by the original comic books. You know, get them in the yellow suit, get it, find a way to get them in the yellow suits and, and do it in this wonderful way where you're kind of crossing uh, crossing the X-Men with a Cold War thriller and a Sean Connery era Bond film. And and for whatever reason, it, it all came together in something that people really enjoyed. And I remain very proud of, of being sm- a small part of that. Yeah, and I mean, you guys really went all out for casting on this film with James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender. And when it was announced that McAvoy was going to be Charles Xavier, I was like, he's too handsome and he has hair. But, oh my gosh, it was perfect. Everything worked out swimmingly. When when you have uh, people of of that caliber and ability in those roles as a screenwriter, do you take that into consideration? I'm sure like, not all the time you know who's going to be in it. But do you try to write towards who is going to be doing the performance, especially in later drafts? A little bit. But, the you know, the wonderful thing about McAvoy and Fassbender is that they were both very well thought of actors, but they I wouldn't call them stars at that, you know, like giant superstars at that point. So it was much more the other way around that you wrote the characters and if anything, the the big thing that we tried to bring to X-Men First Class is if we're going to write Charles and write Eric, we are not going to write them as the characters that you know, only younger. We are going to write them as the characters they were before they became the characters you know, and get the drama out of the fact that you see the events that shaped them into the characters, into Patrick Stewart and, and Ian McKellen. So that's, you know, like, that's tremendously exciting to us as writers. And I think it was tremendously excited, exciting to James and to James and Michael because they didn't have to pretend to be Patrick Stewart or they didn't have to pretend to be Ian McKellen. They could be, you know, like, like McAvoy could be, you know, picking up girls in a bar and, and uh, Fassbender could be this intensely physical, physical and not just cerebral uh, character. So, so it was, you know, I, I think it, the the causation there went in the other direction. We wrote the characters a certain way, and then you know the actors melded themselves to that rather than ooh, what is what is Fassbender's voice? It's like I don't you know from what from shame from from you know from three hundred. It's it's yeah that would have been that would have been very difficult at that point. So, also in the same year, twenty eleven, you wrote the screenplay for. Thor, which I'm I'm sure, you know, the time is, you know, maybe a year or so, you know, different. We we wrote, uh, my then partner and I wrote Thor about 18 months before we wrote X-Men First Class. And then the two movies came out within within 28 days of each other. They were just, <laughs> you know, like, like 
Thor was a more standard process of, okay, we're, you know, we're writing in late 2008, early 2009 for something that was coming out in, you know, May of May of 2011. At one point it was supposed to be summer of 2010, but they, but they, they Marvel in the middle of, of us developing, uh, ended up flopping one for flopping one for the other. Not, I think they ended, yeah, they ended up trading Iron Man two to and and Thor's spot but it just goes to show you like like we were barely a year you know it was April 2010 when we landed the assignment for X-Men first class and they had a script but the you know essentially the instructions were you know use use a little bit of it but uh, throw out most of it and start over again and you know we're coming out in less than 14 months so that was you oh, know wow. it, 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 <laughs> it was at one point I asked the executive, I'm like, oh, so is this one going to be in 3D? And it was like, it was like, man, as fast as we're making this movie, we'll be lucky if it's in focus. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so when you were on the Thor film, how was it working with Kenneth Branagh? And did you have any interaction with him? At all, oh my or, God! Yeah, I, no, we had huge amounts of interaction with him. It was, you know, like we we got notes from him as we were going to to outline, and then you know, three weeks later when we came in with the draft, it was sitting down in a room with uh, with Ken, with Kevin Feige, with Craig Kyle, and with a couple of the other Marvel uh, Studios people, and literally like turning each page and going through it page by page often line by line with him ken's you know i like this i don't like this change this keep this oh hey let's all act this scene out together and you realize that you're you know, <laughs> oh, nice you're doing a scene with you know the foremost shakespearean actor of his generation which is you know which was quite an experience but but yeah no we were super hands-on for about you know four months or so with with Ken and then you know they were kind of getting up into production and they got they got a very talented writer who's unfortunately no longer with us Don Payne to be the the on-set guy and to to be the person doing rewrites as they went along which as you know with movies like this you're you know you turn in the screenplay, you're generally rewriting them all through shooting, and then you're rewriting them again in the editing room as you're adding ADR lines or, you know, swapping out scenes or realizing that you need a scene here and you need to reshoot something. So, you know, like, like films screenplays are never, you know, finished so much as abandoned because, you know, the release date is coming out. Yeah, that's, uh, it sounds like a lot of burning the candle at both ends, a lot of hurry up and wait, a lot of busy. So, yeah, no, we, you know, we were so under the gun with X-Men First Class. We were, you know, we were writing drafts in, you know, like 10 days and working 16 hour days on this. You know, at one point, you know, we we're doing a rewrite on it to try and get Matthew Vaughn attached as director. And and my then partner and I were, you know, we we're passing it back and forth via email. And I had to drive up to officiate at my brother's wedding and, you know, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> driving up 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 the length of California with three kids and you know like 
and they were very young at the time too. So they needed a lot. And then you'd put them to, I'd put them to bed and it was like, okay, now I can write. And I'd write until two in the morning and crash and then get up with the kids and, and write the script again. And, and of course everyone got the flu right about then too. So that was just, yeah, that was very special, but it, it all, you know, I, I like to think that sense of manic energy, you know, came out in the, in the finished product a little bit. So when you go from like writing a film to writing a television show, how is the transition between, is it, is the feel different? Like the writer's rooms, is it, is it a little bit more of a laid back pace? No, if anything, you know, like, like TV, especially, you know, like TV is a pre- is a production machine it's like you know like that machine burns you know burns a script every you know eight days to two weeks and you need to keep feeding that thing so you need to keep the room up and running and you need to keep episodes you know it's it's like those it's like some picture of of like a world war ii factory where they're making ships and you see like the one ship is finished and they're about to launch it into the water and then the next one they're putting the finishing touches and then the next one they're just laying down the keel you know like that's what a tv writing process is like it's much more of a of an assembly line but but it's there's been a certain convergence especially in the last five or ten years movies have gotten a lot more like tv you've had movies that have been written by writers that have been broken by writers rooms like like they're a tv show but it's still, you know, like TV is much more collaborative and much more, you know, it doesn't have to be just you and the blank page. You've got a room full of very smart people coming up with coming up with stories together. Does that work? Does that suit you? Do you like that? Or do you prefer the more solitary man in a, in a computer? I, I like them both. You know, like I, I really... You know, when I was working on Booster Gold, you know, that was when I started working on Booster Gold, you know, like Greg had just his first child had been born and, and, you know, he had a billion, as he has now, he had a billion shows going on and he was like, Hey man, you want to consult on the flash? You could be in the room like two <laughs> days a week. And then if we needed you for something, you'd be there. And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So I, that was that kind of uh, eight months there was like the best of both worlds because I got to have the fun of being in a writer's room for a couple days a week, but then I got to go home and be with my kids and do all of that, you know, and and do my solitary retreat into the office to to work thing. I want to talk about family and balancing of a, a little bit later because that's something that's very important to me, having that work-life balance. If If that's a thing, it might be a myth. It's a goal, shall we say. <laughs> uh, I hope to find it one day. I have two kids of my own. Oh, wonderful. Congratulations. Uh, I, I love it. I love being a dad. Oh, my gosh. Finding time to write is you have to wait till they're in bed. And sometimes they don't want to go to bed. So <laughs> it, yeah, it can be sure. difficult. But, yeah, uh, it, it really can. It really can be difficult. And, and I, you know, it, it's, it seems to have been a thing in my career where the worse and the more high stakes the deadline is, the more likely it is that at least one of the kids is going to get sick. At least one of the kids is going to, you know, really need something. They're like, like life always has a way of crashing in to work when it's uh, when it's least convenient. 
So how has that affected here recently with COVID outbreak? Everyone's a lot home, home a lot more rather. Has that affected your uh, productivity or Ah. has it increased because you're home and actually able to concentrate? You know, for the first couple months, I'll admit I barely got anything done. It was a combination of depression, having everyone under one roof together, and then that thing that people call, uh, what is it, doom scrolling, where you're just going oh, yeah. to social media, you know, reading like what horrible things have, have happened today. And that was really, you know, that was that was really difficult. And you know, halfway through, we changed internet providers because we were, we everything was under so much strain. Everything was under so much strain from from everyone on, you know, three different kids on three different Zoom classes. But then, weirdly, since like about June or so, I've been super productive. I've, you know, like I've I've either written or co-written like four features. I've been pitching on a lot of things and I felt like things have really started clicking creatively and I've really tried to like make use of the time to, to, to do good stuff. So, you know, it's, it, it comes and goes. <laughs> that's, that's, I wish I could be more eloquent about it than that, but, but it's, it's definitely been a work in progress trying to, to get into a creative headspace um, in the middle of all this madness in the world right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. One quick question. I understand that there is a proposed remake of Big Trouble in Little China. Is that still going on now that Fox is... Now that Fox is no more? Um, yeah, exactly. Eaten up by the Di- Disney machine. I think it will probably happen. It will probably not happen with our script. And I will very briefly tell you why. We developed, my former partner and I, was this was the last thing that we ever did together, developed a remake of Big Trouble in Little China for The Rock to star in with The Rock's company producing. And the original plan and what The Rock wanted was for The Rock to play Jack Burton. And so we wrote what I think was a very good remake of uh, Big Trouble in Little China with The Rock as Jack Burton. Here's what happened. They ended up making, uh, I think The Rock ended up making um, that Fast and the Furious movie with Kurt Russell. And so he's there on set with Kurt Russell and Kurt Russell is like, hey, you're remaking my movie (laughs) art for me in there. And I I think day after day, what ended up getting into his mind was, Hey, what if I played a new character and Kurt came back as like old Jack Burton. So I think at some point, and the other problem besides the fact that Fox is no more is the fact that the rock is like, booked up till you know 2024 or something so just finding a spot for him to make this movie is incredibly difficult but i i think if and when it eventually happens it will probably happen with with a, a different version where it's where it's uh you know kurt is old jack and 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 dj is you know i'm probably not his son but another character shall we say so when i was a kid and saw that i saw like, oh, Kurt Russell is cool as hell, and uh, he's the hero and saves the day. As an adult watching that film, you realize Jack Burton is a jackass. He is the biggest moron on the planet, and the the people who are actually saving the day are his friends that you know kind of come to his rescue. Yeah, and he like just Wang kind of failed yeah. his way to success, <laughs> like a, a lot of white dudes that I know. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, it, I was, I was very curious how you guys would do that with the rock as the lead, because he doesn't seem like somebody that would be the tool <laughs> on, on a movie. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, though, about the, the two things. One, if you go, the, it's a very common reading that, like, he's that to say Jack Burton's not actually the hero of Big Trouble in Little China. He's much more of a co-hero, and he's an absurd character. But if you notice, like, he is the one who kills Lopin at the end. He's the one that throws the knife through his head with the "it's all in the reflexes" line. So, so he does have that last heroic act, even though he, you know shoots the ceiling and rocks fall on his head and he misses most of the kung fu battle so there is that but there is also the fact that yes that you know that the rock actually has a tremendous sense of humor about himself and is willing to be very silly and i think people would be if our script ever uh, sees the light of day i think people will be will be surprised at at how much Dwayne was happy to share the limelight with with the the Wang character and 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 let him have his his glory as well that that's awesome you you have have rehabilitated the idea of that movie being remade in my mind. So <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I, I mean, I love it dearly, and it's one of uh, Dwayne's like five favorite movies. And my former writing partner, it's probably his favorite movie of all time. So so a- everyone treated the original movie with a huge amount of reverence. And and if, if anything, you know, if anything. What we tried to do with the remake was in the way that the original Big Trouble in Little China was a love letter to the kind of Chinese Hong Kong action cinema of the 60s and 70s, like the Shaw Brothers. We tried to make this movie a love letter to the last 20 years of Chinese and Hong Kong action cinema, if that makes any sense. Like more, you know, like homages to like Hero and House of Flying Daggers and things like that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that is seemingly a a much more artistic take on the genre, I guess, because those movies were art. They were beautiful to look at. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, well, I, I wish them the best with whatever happens with it. So I understand, speaking of China... You are, you teach? Yeah, I've, I've somehow, I, yeah, I, I um, like a couple times a year, I haven't done it in a year or so, but uh, a couple times a year, I like to go to to China and, and teach screenwriting there. It's uh, to, to, which is a huge amount of fun. And the young Chinese screenwriters and directors are so smart. And it's, you know, it, it my, my joke is that I feel like I'm like bringing the, the atomic, the atomic secrets over. You know, it's like, okay, kids, here's three act structure. It's, you know, like I'm writing myself out of a job because, you know, God knows technically they're, they're on such a high level there. And now we're teaching them, you know, the tricks of American genre, the American genre writing as well. But I, you know, I, I like to think at its best that, that the diff, the cinemas of different countries can be in conversations with each other. And, and influence each other in really fun ways. And I'll give an example, like like the way that 
the Japanese samurai film and the American Western have been in conversation with each other for like 75 years, you know, that Akira Kurosawa watched John Ford movies and, you know, read Dashiell Hammett stories. And then the Westerns were like, you know, well, let's remake The Seven Samurai as a Western. And then, you know, the Japanese were like, let's make Unforgiven as a samurai film. And you know, like, I, I, I'd really love it if American movies and Chinese movies could be in that kind of a dialogue, in that kind of a dialogue with each other. And I'm just, you know, I, I, I like new experiences and getting to getting to visit China, you know, three different times so far has been just a tremendous amount of fun, like going to Beijing and Tianjin and uh, and Shanghai. It's, you know, it's it. Like, I want to I want to ride on the maglev, you know, it's like getting a little visit to the future. So so and those are the kinds of things that really inspire you as a writer. That's awesome. And, and it's also, I guess, I guess, a shrewd move on Hollywood's part to encourage these new talents because they're starting to be a big market for us for Hollywood films. Oh, they're a huge market. They're the yeah. sec- you know, the you know, monetarily the second biggest in the world and you know, in terms of tickets sold and not even close, the 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 first by far. So how did you get involved with that in the first place? Was are you you know, are- a friend a friend had gotten into it and it was teaching for a for a the Sundance of, of China. And oh, was cool. like, hey, they're tired of me doing this, and you know they want someone <laughs> with they want someone with genre ex- experience, and I'm a comedy guy. Could you go? And I'm like, yeah, I'll go. That's yeah, um, awesome. You know, and they you know they, they they put you up in a really nice hotel, and you know they're like you you have lots of meals with local dignitaries where they're like pushing all kinds of amazing food at you, and and you know it's it it at the last day and a half we. We did a big tour of Beijing, and and it was yeah, it was just a blast. So that you make me think that you might possibly be a spy. I'm just putting this out there. <laughs> it's out there. No, but um, yeah, that that sounds fantastic. That's that's an amazing experience that you've got to have, and I'm sure it's it's not something that you you ever necessarily really planned on. It just kind of came up because they saw your talent and saw that you were able to teach. Yeah, um, you, know, it, you know, there's the part of it that's like the fun experience. And then there's the part of it where it's like, hey, man, it's a global, you know, it's a it's a global industry and you've got to take those skills globally, too. So outside of film writing, I understand that you are also a, uh, a prose writer. You've written a few novels. Would you mind talking about those a little bit and about the transition from writing for the screen to writing, you know, writing your novel? Yeah, my former partner and I wrote a novel that actually started life as a pilot. And it was a YA novel uh, called Colin Fisher, which uh, I'm very proud of, which is it's I, I like to say it's like Holmes and Watson in high school. You know, like uh, a little bit Encyclopedia Brown, a little bit The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. 
And, uh, and that was a tremendous amount of fun, but it was, it, it's funny. We used all kinds of weird cinematic techniques in the, in the pilot and we had to, and it was fun using, you know, like, like using all of the possibilities of prose, you know, like, like doing things as diary entries, using footnotes, you know, we used footnotes a lot to try and uh, replicate how the character thinks and, you know, using internal narration and, you know, all, all kinds of things that you don't really use as a as a screenwriter so it was really fun stretching a different muscle there's a there's a uh, catholic high school up in the san francisco bay area that that uses that assigns it to ninth graders and i go and for the last like three or four years i've gone up and talked to them every every october unfortunately i probably won't be doing that this year but maybe i'll do it over zoom or something but I, I really enjoyed that process, and right now I'm working on a novel on my own. That's that's sort of a, a little bit more Da Vinci Code, a little bit more, you know. It's also a mystery, but but a, a, an adventure is an adventure as well. So this so, be Nevermore. Yeah, this is Nevermore. So you know, a, a father and a, his estranged teenage son solving the the mystery of Edgar Allan Poe's death. That sounds pretty rad. I'm sold already. So yeah. what was your, your inspiration for the story? The inspiration for the story was this, the, I don't know if you know that for like 50 years, this mysterious figure. Um, oh, the rose guy. The, the Poe toaster, you know, would sneak into the graveyard on Poe's birthday and and drink cognac and leave a rose on, on Edgar Allan Poe's grave. And it's become a bit, you know, it became a big tourist thing to kind of keep a respectful distance, but watch for him. And I had the idea of like, what if this father and this kind of teenage, this kind of alienated teenager who's super into Poe go to see this and are the only witnesses to the Poe toaster being murdered? And and in it leading to this to this whole mystery, you know, again, kind of Da Vinci Code esque, but but all Poe related too, because there are very you know the, the Poe's death is very mysterious, and you know, like he was found in another man's clothes, and no one knows where he had been, and you know, like all kinds of crazy things, and you know, we end up in Antarctica by the end of it, by the end of it, and, and with some fanciful theories about about what Poe was really up to. So that was kind of the germ of it. It was the germ of that and like, but like trying to tell this very emotional story about a, a, a father and a son learning to reconnect with each other via this adventure. I guess I, I guess, you know, I saw Indiana Jones in the last crusade at a formative time in my life. And <laughs> I, I enjoy those kinds of stories. Did your experience as a, as a father play in, into the writing of this novel any because it oh, seems like it is very personal oh it, yeah it's super personal it's, it's my my experiences as a father and a son it, it informed it and and that's the fun part of writing is that you can is you find yourself at one age of your life empathize you know it's the joke about how you know you watch the breakfast club as a teenager and you're like yeah they stuck it to the man and then you watch it. The older you get, the more you empathize with that vice principal, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to teach those little brats a, a, a lesson or two about life. So, you know, you try and write with full empathy for all of the characters and where they're coming from. So when you're writing the characters, how do you inhabit that? Like, how do you put your, your mind into who they are? 
Do you have a, a secret to helping to develop those people? You know, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of things. It's it's coming up with a biography for them. It's coming up with a biography and backstory, thinking about the real people in your life who they remind you of. And then more than that, just kind of having an ear. And, the you know, it, the more you think about them and the more you live with the characters, the more you start to hear their voice, you start to hear their voices. And that's when the writing gets really exciting is when you really start hearing their voices in your head and and it's you know you end up really you you know they feel like real people to you you see that in like you know interviews with jk rowling she'll you know like like she she talks about all of those all of those kids like they're her actual children and in a way they are like you know they you spend more time with them in in your head than you do with the you know with the actual people in your life sometimes when you are ending a project, whether it be a book, whether it be a film, whether it be a TV show. Is it hard to get those people out of your head and get the story out of your head? And uh, further more, from, you know, further from that, like, what do you do to kind of refresh yourself so that you can get back onto another project? Can you just, you know, go cold turkey and start another project? Or do you have, is there a coming down period? It's different, you know, it's it's different from with each time. I've more recently I've really tried to roll from one project right into another, but there is a process of what we like to, you know, it, it's terrible, you know, I don't want to I don't say this to belittle the the process of actual childbirth, but we we joke that there is a postpartum depression when you when you finish a draft and, you know, a weird feel, you know, you're relieved to have it done, but there's a weird feeling of emptiness at the same time. And then emptiness combined with impatience for, uh, you know, your reps or the producers or the editors or whoever to read it, you know, so, so there's that. And really the best thing that I found that I can do is to keep my mind off of it is to start work on something is to start work on something else. That's awesome. I, I recently talked to Jeff Smith. He's a creator of a character named Bone. It's a comic book. Oh, uh, yeah. No, that's, that's a yeah, freaking... Yeah, going to be on Netflix it. soon. He was he lived with that character, you know, in the whole series in his head for uh, almost 20 years, maybe. And <laughs> he told me that um, right as he was ending it, his wife said, you know, you get it out on time, you get to go anywhere you want to. And he... He said that kind of helped him get through the depression part. <laughs> they went to like somewhere in the Pacific and it was nice and took his mind off of it. Oh, that must be nice. I know, right? We <laughs> <laughs> you know, stay in the middle of a pandemic where we can't go anywhere. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I just saw it like some like an ad on Facebook for like something called workations where you can go, you know, like to some hotel in Cancun and, you know, work there and they'll take care of everything. I'm like, you know, maybe if we weren't in a pandemic, I'd consider that. But I, you know, I don't feel like getting on a plane right now. Oh, man. Yeah. So I had to go to a funeral a few weeks ago and flew from Columbus, Ohio, my my plane stopped in in texas no texas. one was wearing masks i had somebody I... berate me for wearing a mask oh to, nice to which i yeah i was like i work in healthcare. you're a jackass um man and so but yeah anyways people uh, anyway <laughs> i was born but, in columbus by the way 
Yeah, it's, it's a nice city. It's it's my sister uh, lives and and works there, and it's I'm impressed with it. It's, it's a very nice place. But yeah, it is. How did you end up out in California? Did you go there specifically for for screenwriting? No, I grew up in a rural town. My my parents moved out. You know, they were hippies. They and Buckeyes, and they moved out uh, to California when I was very young. And I, I grew up first in the East Bay and a little suburb there, and then in a, a logging town uh, called Fort Bragg up in uh, up in Mendocino County in the Redwood Forest. So so I'm a different parts of California, but I'm a California boy for for most of my life. Sounds like you had an interesting childhood, though, for real. Yeah, yeah, it's been, you know, I I like to say it, it really helped, you know, the more interesting of a life you you lead, the more the more material you have. So so, you know, it's it was Oh, sorry, it was a good ah, what is how it is happening? Sorry. You there? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> just a weird thing came up. But yeah, so so that's that's been uh, that's been the story of my life so far. That's awesome. So, I understand you are on a something to do with XPRIZE. You're on the science fiction like panel or chair or something for XPRIZE. Yeah, that, that that's just, you know, friends of friends inviting me inviting me on it. You know, it's another thing that I'm involved with is I I do a lot with the military, you know, like like a little bit of advising for them and a lot of like going on uh, going on tours of, you know, facilities and things like facilities. I was a guest at at a Comic-Con on a submarine base in Connecticut. And and, you know, so I, I was a Coast Guard brat growing up. So I, I coming from a military family, I really try and give back that way to to personnel in the armed forces. And it's also great education because you end up writing a lot of military characters. And the more, you know, like when my former partner and I, for example, were writing the remake of Starship Troopers, we said, uh, hey, we want to go to a, a real boot camp and see what boot camp looks like now because anytime you see boot camp it's in, in a movie it's like a collection of 50 year old cliches or like someone who watched full metal jacket so like let's see what boot camp is like now and it was you know they flew us down to like fort fort sill and and we spent like three days there and it was great and it was and and you meet extraordinary people that way did you get to partake in any of the exercises for boot camp or was it just yeah, like we did a little bit observational of, it was mostly observational we did a little bit of pt did the obstacle course but you know they didn't let us fire the 50 caliber unfortunately <laughs> so uh, w- having those experiences i understand you also did uh, a little bit of work on the upcoming top gun remake or yeah, sequel? we were the first sequel. We were the first writers on. The, we were the first writers way back in the day on that when Tony Scott was still alive. We worked on that for about three months. It was a lot of fun, and I like to say being fired by Tony Scott over the phone <laughs> was one of the uh, was it was a career high point because <laughs> usually usually when you get fired off of an assignment and it happens a lot you just get ghosted and eventually you hear back from your agents that like, yeah, they're going a different direction. But in this time it was, you know, like you get the call and it's like, Hey boys, this is Tony. I'm sorry. It's just not working out. Love you though. And and it's like, Hey, we appreciate the call. What a minch. And then, what you know, a... 
Jerry Bruckheimer, Jerry Bruckheimer did the same thing. He called too. I'm like, I'm like, how come I just got fired, but I actually feel okay about it. It's like, oh, because they were decent guys. So yeah, that freaking broke my heart when he when he passed away. But I do not know if they've kept any material from our work and the final version, but I am going to be there opening night because I love me some Maverick and I love me some IMAX cameras, some IMAX cameras uh, inside the cockpit of an F-18. Oh yeah. Yeah. That'll be amazing. Especially with what we have now in, in terms of effects and filming and all that. I'm so glad that I didn't hear a, a crappy Tony Scott story. It seems like he was a, a, a good guy all around. It, it sucks that, that you got let go off the project, but what what a way to be shown the door. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's, you know, no ill feelings about that whatsoever. That is some old school, like, like, yeah, he's probably been shown the door several times himself oh, and sure. he's doing it the way he would want to be treated. So that's, that's amazing. When you have a project that you step away from or are let go from, and then eventually it sees the light of day with someone else, is it is it hard to see that project come to life? Is it like seeing an ex-girlfriend or whatever? Oh, it's, ex- it's exactly like that. And generally, I don't end up watching it. Generally, I don't end up watching it. You know, like <laughs> people are like, like, oh, you guys worked on the Power Rangers remake. You know, like, what'd you think of the movie? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Um, you know, I'm like, no disrespect for the people involved. I hope it was a good movie. It's just, it was a painful experience to get let go from that. And I have no desire to revisit it by watching that movie. Uh, I completely understand that. It's, it, it's, and I'm sure it's, it's part of the, the game. Yeah. This, I, I, I hate to, to do this. I kind of need to wrap up fairly soon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the best excuse ever. There are wildfires on all sides of us, and the air is filled with smoke. And so I'm getting like, I'm beginning to get dizzy. And uh, Zach, get the hell out of there, dude. Yeah, no, it's just there's so much smoke in the air that it's like that talking nonstop for an hour is just really difficult for me. But, but so if you have any last couple questions, I would love to answer them though. I, I will let you go for your safety and thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Do you have anything you want to promote before we, before we let you go? Yes. I developed for Netflix, DreamWorks animation and universal, the animated show, uh, Jurassic world camp Cretaceous. And it is going to be debuting on Netflix September 18th. I, after I created the show, I stepped back into a consulting role. So the people running the show, I, are uh, Scott Creamer and and Josie Campbell and some really smart writers and Colin Trevorrow and Steven Spielberg and Frank Marshall have all consulted on it. it Who are those it guys? Is, fits within the canon of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World lore. There are all kinds of Easter eggs for fans of the genre, and I think people are just going to really dig it. So I hope everyone watches that in a month. That that's awesome. And who is it made for? Like like age range. I'd say eight and up. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So if you have kids eight and up, as long as they don't, you know, there are some scares. We don't shy away from that. 
but but the kids are really appealing and and from really diverse backgrounds and we have amazing voice actors we've got we've got Glenn Powell who's in the upcoming in the upcoming Top Gun and we have Jamila Jamil aka Tahani from the Good Place as another oh, awesome. voice and it's going to be really good Dude, I can't wait to see that. And I have a, a five and a 10-year-old, so oh, they're going to be all over it. Yeah, I, they do love the kids do love dinosaurs. So, Zach, I can't wait to see this. Jurassic Park Camp, Camp Cretaceous. Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Exactly. Um, and if you're a dinosaur fan, you will know that most of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are not actually from the Jurassic period, but from the Cretaceous period. So that was our little way of correcting the record. <laughs> you're doing the Lord's work, Zach. Thank exactly. you so much, man. Oh, Dude, my, my pleasure. Good luck with everything. Stay safe. Mask up and double mask up now, apparently. Yeah, so. right. Yeah, N95 all day long. All right, take take it easy, brother. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. And we're back. What do you think, guys? That's kind of cool. I yeah, I didn't even know about the Booster Gold show until just literally just now as I'm looking up Zach to do this intro outro for you guys. I'm like, holy crap. Greg Valenti's making a making a Booster Gold show? That's awesome. So Zach is working on that, and it's going to be, I mean, assuming it gets past the pilot stage, it's going to be great. Although looking at it now, it says that it was last updated in 2018. However, Zach listed on his Instagram, so who knows? We'll see. And so, Zach, thanks for coming on. That was awesome. Now, if you want to come back on, just let us know. We'd be happy to have you. And, uh, you know, if you out there listening, if you liked that, and I know you did, go check out Zach and all the work that he's done, and check him out on his Twitter at, uh, at MuseZach, and then check out all the stuff he's written. And check out all of our back issues. Go to Splitverse.com and check out all the back issues that we have. And check out all of our other shows that we have. We have a lot. I know I say this every time, but I think it's important for you to go out there. If you want news and you want like breaking news, check out our show, Bridging the Geekdoms with Robert and Colton. They do a lot of cool stuff. If you like horror stuff, go to Nerds from the Crypt. You know, comic book deep dives, go into funny book forensics. It's a lot of fun. So go to Splitverse.com, check all of that out. Go to the store, buy something, buy a shirt, look fly as hell. You know, get all the get all the goods, get all the fellows, and you know, have fun with it. Although, you know, right now you see them on a Zoom call, on a Skype call, because we're still in quarantine. So, you know, don't do that. You can get a mask though. You can get a face mask that says "Spoiler Country." Do that. And uh, also, go to scpod.us/discord. Join our public Discord server. We have a lot of fun there. You can talk to all of us and have a great old time. And with that, we're gonna end this because that's that's a show. I don't know why I say that. In Ocean's a podcast, we are Cthulhu, and as Cthulhu commands you to do, open the mind and read more.